we'll begin our reading from First Peter chapter 1, from verse 1 to verse 2, the first two verses. Can you read for us, please, um, Favor? Okay. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. And it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Thank you. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. So the reason I wanted us to read just two verses is that there's a word that has been burning in my heart, and that's the word, the dispersion. We looked at it last week when we said that Peter is writing to intensely persecuted Christians, intensely persecuted churches. And we said that based on the timing of when this letter was written, that this dispersion was most likely from Rome. Rome was the capital of the ancient Roman Empire. And at that time, around 64 AD, um, Nero was the emperor. And we, we saw that Nero blamed the Christians for the fire, for the great fire of Rome that ravaged um, a good part of that ancient city and destroyed some of the religious temples. And because he blamed the Christians, he was able to get the citizens of Rome to turn on the Christians in response. And so we said there was persecution everywhere you turned. Suddenly, everything that you had labored for, that you had fought for, was under attack. And the only option was to disperse. But you see, the idea of a dispersion in Christ, I don't know about you, but in my head, it raises some questions. I don't know if, if it raises the same questions in your heart. One of the pertinent questions it raises for me is, why is there a dispersion in Christ, right? In view of the finality, right, of the victory of Jesus over the power of the enemy in his resurrection, right? There is no power or authority that Satan has that was not given to Jesus, that Jesus did not subdue in his resurrection, right? So based on that, like the people who like to preach that there is absolutely no suffering, right, in the Christian life can, can, can make the conclusion that if it is true that all power is in the hands of Jesus, then suffering itself is a contradiction to your faith or your belief system. And that's the first question I wanted to ask us, you know, to, to consider today, right? Why is there a dispersion in Christ? What do you think? Okay, that question is too hard. The other question then is, why would the Roman Empire come after Christians? Have you thought about that as well? This was a Roman Empire. Now, Christianity was, was and is a movement of love, right? Um, Christianity, even this letter, um, proclaims virtues such as surrender, submission, right? So anybody who tags themselves as a Christian and is truly a Christian is not a threat to an empire. Or at least that is what we are supposed to expect. So why would Nero, right, the most ruthless um, of the emperors, or at least one of the most ruthless, why, why would he feel threatened, intimidated by the Christians? These questions sound historical, 
but they are quite relevant for our case. Right? Because you might think that, oh, I'm a Christian. I'm not looking for Satan, you know? So he's not supposed to look for me. Um, or I'm not looking for anybody's trouble, right? I'm just, I'm just living my life. And then you may think that because you, you've made that decision, then that means that certain things are not supposed to come around your space. But we see what looks like a contradiction here, that an entire empire had to turn on a few people who believed in Jesus. Why is that? What is it about Christianity that makes an empire afraid of it? Or if not afraid, at least irritated by it. Irritated enough that they would want all the Christians to leave. Well, just to give us some historical background, right? The, the Roman Empire was originally a polytheistic empire. And by polytheistic, we mean that there was the worship of several gods, right? Um, and some of them were from the Roman traditions, others were from the Greek Hellenistic traditions. What that means is that people worship the god of this or the god of that. They worshiped Venus and named Venus the god of something, right? And what, what that means is that there, is a certain, there was a certain falsehood to the religious system, right? There was a certain falsehood to the system of worship that was in place because these were gods that were not gods indeed, right? And so this is the kind of religious exercise. This is the kind of religious being that the political, um, the political class are comfortable with. Because like a philosopher in the 19th century said that religion is the opium of the masses, right? So as long as the masses have something that gives them a false kind of hope, a false kind of identity, a false kind of basis for life, then the political class is actually happy with that. And in the Roman traditions, these systems of false belief were so established that you could say that it was easy and it was possible for the political class, or at least the political class knew where to go, right? To influence society. But that was the case until Christians came. And they, and they came with a different message, with the message of the gospel. And this message turns everything on its head. This message insists that there is something called the truth. And that anyone who is not for the truth is eventually against the truth. Right? This message insists that I am not the God of my life. That any kind of worth or security that I find in anything that is earthly, anything that is that is material, that any kind of worth or security I find in such things is, is temporal at best, right? And at, worst is, and at worst, is going to lead to eternal damnation. It's going to lead to an eternity of separation from God. Christianity arrived with a radical message, right? That, that we are not kings of our own little kingdoms, if you like. That there is a king who rules above the affairs of men. That, that we are morally accountable to that king. We are morally accountable to another. Christianity elevates the person of Christ and God above every human structure. I'm saying this to say that Christianity, by its very nature, is offensive. It's, of, it's offensive to the mind 
that is not redeemed. It's offensive to the mind that is not renewed. Because you're saying to me that I need to lay down my rights to myself. I need to lay down the, the um, autonomy that I have to, to do what I want to do, right? to take my own path. right? And I need to lay it down for another. I need to submit. I need to surrender. I need to give up. It was a radical message. Now, it wouldn't have been a problem if this message was not so compelling in this politistic um, society. But it was a problem because it was compelling. It was, it was directly challenging the religious structures of that day. It was directly challenging without intending to, right? It was directly challenging the political setup of that day. And that is what the truth does. The truth takes away all the facades. It takes away everything that is a smokescreen. And it points straight to the reality of God. And the truth, if you know anything about the truth, the truth is always offensive. That's what Jesus said to Pilate in John chapter 18, verse 37 at his trial. He said, for this, for this reason I came, right, to bear witness to the truth. And anyone who is of the truth hears me. That was enough to take Pilate off completely in that trial. Because every time it is about the truth. It's not about my relative opinion. It's not about the little God that I make in my heart, you know, and I, and that little God in my heart has certain things that I like that the God also likes. And anything I dislike, I, I, I make sure that that God does not dislike those things. No, it's about the truth. So I'm saying all of this to say that Christianity, there's an offensive part of Christianity. It's not that we go around looking for trouble, or it's not that we go around talking our way into trouble. It's just that the very nature of the gospel that saves us is exclusive. It reveals a holy God whose holiness cannot tolerate sin, cannot tolerate compromise, cannot tolerate mixture to anything else. And not only does he does the gospel reveal a holy God, it reveals that each person, including Nero, the emperor, is accountable to that God. And if not in this life, in the life to come, we will answer eventually to that God. So you see that it was inevitable that these Christians were going to be persecuted because this was, this was the foundation of Christianity. It's not today where in our Western societies or even in our African societies where Christianity has taken a foothold. And the Christian way of thinking about life has become accepted, has become almost like a norm. This was the beginnings of, of this radical way of being. So it was inevitable that there will be persecution that will accompany anyone who believes. Right? And that's why Peter felt the burden to write to the dispersion. All of this thought about the dispersion is to say that you and I are faced with the same thing in our culture today, right? As much as our culture has been Christianized, even though majority in the culture may not necessarily identify or be Christians, but we still face areas of our culture where if our Christianity is to stand up and be what God made it to be, then there's going to be offense. And you see, it is the suffering that is triggered right, by that arrangement that Peter is addressing in this letter. It's not all kinds of suffering, okay? 
Does that make sense to us? What I explained? Any thoughts? Yeah, what you said actually makes sense, Josh. Thank you. Um, you're right. Christianity um, actually robs people the wrong way. You know, when you tell them that, oh, you actually have to give up autonomy of yourself and all that, and people mm -hmm. automatically the the thought to be like, uh, no, thank you. <laughs> um, it's quite it's quite a harsh thing to say to someone who has always thought that, oh, my life is my own. I'm the um, master of my own fate and all that tell them that actually um no you're not the master of your own fate dear someone else is they're like ah. like a culture shock to them like their mind just gets <laughs> it's a shock it's, it's well, foolishness sometimes yeah, right yeah. It yeah, is. it's important it for us to, to them. yeah it's important for us to realize that this is the faith that we've been called to of course there is an element of our faith that prevails in the end right where eventually the eyes of the blind are opened and they begin to see reality. But it's not always like that. So that if you find yourself in a place where you have to stand up for the gospel and your opinion is not popular, you are at home, you are at home, you are at home. So then, thank you, Favor, for that contribution. I hope I didn't cut you off. Did you finish? Yeah, I'm, I'm done. Yeah, thank you. Okay. So the question then is, what does Peter, how does Peter begin his admonition to these people who are enduring suffering because of their conviction, right? Because of their faith. What he does is that he reminds them that they were elect by the grace of God. That's what verse two says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Why this principle of election is necessary is that as a Christian, one of the things you're going to be accused of is exclusivity, right? And perhaps of pride. Who, who are you to say that you know the truth? And I don't know the truth, right? Who are you to say that your religion, your belief system, your way of worshiping is superior to mine or is the only way? Peter is saying that it's not as though I'm better than you. It's an election of grace. It was by the mercy of God that I was chosen, that you were chosen, that our eyes were opened to truth. Because someone can indeed intimidate you on those grounds and say, hey, you are not better than me. So there's no guarantee that what you're saying to me can be truth. But you need to stand your ground on the basis of election. It is because of election that you read some, some <laughs> unbelievable things in scripture where where after the after Peter and, and John, if you if you remember in Acts chapter five, I believe, were 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 lashed with many lashes by the Sanhedrin. Remember, the Bible the Bible says that they rejoiced. They rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. I don't know what goes through your mind when you read such statements. They rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. But for a long time, I didn't get it. What is there to rejoice about that I was lashed? But you see, all of it makes sense in the context of truth. That it was by divine election that God opened my eyes to the truth. 
And so it is a privilege for me to stand with God in the truth. And even if that means enduring suffering, to God be the glory. Right? You know, in our contemporary times, and even in the time of the apostles, the, the election of the believer is used as, as grounds for lasciviousness, right? Is used as grounds for abusing the grace that saves us. You know, what we often hear is that, you know, you were elected, God foreknew you, so what is it that you can do that can make you lose your salvation? That's an indication of how, of how far how far away we've disconnected from the original gospel, uh, burden of the gospel. Because in the writings of the apostles, the election of, a of the believer was used to stir up the believer to faithfulness. That in the midst of intense persecution, opposition, and contradiction against your faith, the, the election, the foreknowledge of God in choosing you, the graciousness of God in choosing you is something that you hold on to. That I don't know why things went the way they are, but I know that if I'm in faith today, it's because he elected me. And it is a privilege to be numbered among those who were elected. So in a world that is blinded to the truth, it's a privilege, friends, to have our eyes open to it. So there is no circumstance that you should go through that will convince you that your lot is worse than that of someone whose eyes have not been opened to the truth. It doesn't matter what, what riches the person has on earth. And, and Peter goes on to give us the two great resources of election, grace and peace. You see, on the basis of your election, there are two great resources that you're going to read over and over again that God makes av available because of election. He says, grace to you and peace be multiplied. You see, the grace of God is God going with you. It's the presence of God with you. It's the power of God accompanying you. But the peace of God is that which stabilizes your heart. It has a stabilizing effect upon your heart so that the more of the grace of God is in your life, the more God can do through you, the more, the more God does in you, right? That you begin to produce supernatural results because of grace is the empowerment of god is god working alongside you multiplying your little effort but the peace of god is designed for times of trial you see the peace of god is designed for contradictions the peace of god is a thing that keeps you grounded in the will of god that even though everything around you may be going haywire you can you can remain firm in the will of God because of the peace of God. Everyone that God elects and calls into this holy calling is granted grace and peace. And Peter tells us that, that these two can be multiplied because in the second letter, second Peter, he focuses on the multiplication aspect, on the maturity aspect, because like we said last week, at the end of the day, suffering did not break this church. Instead, it made them successful. The thing that eventually broke them was not suffering, but deception. And his antidote in the second letter was to grow up into maturity as a defense against deception. Okay? Can you read for us then, Favor, from verse 3 to verse 5? Okay, verse 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy 
has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection mm -hmm. of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved for you reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time okay thank you so now he begins to talk about the preciousness of our salvation. Now that he has greeted them, he has reminded them of their election. Right? He begins to talk about the preciousness of their salvation. And the, thing he, the first thing he wants us to know about our salvation is that we were begotten, right? Or we were born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We were born again to a living hope. You were born again to a living hope. The old King James, I like the way it puts it, because it's a lively hope. What does that mean? How do you understand it? Blessed, he's blessing God. <laughs> that God is blessed. God, who is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is blessed because according to his abundant mercy, he has begotten us. We have been made of new stuff. We have been born again to a living hope. How do you understand that? What is a living hope? What makes our hope living? How do you understand that phrasing? Okay, well, there are two aspects to, to our living hope that he um, expands for us in, the, in verse 4 and verse 5, right? We can see in verse 4 that there is a futuristic promise of our faith. He's saying to us that we have been called to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that that hope is, is stored up for us in the form of an inheritance. And it says that inheritance is incorruptible, undefiled, and does not fade away, reserved for you in heaven. So through the resurrection of Jesus, we see an example of, of what God has destined us to become. And of course, when he's referring to an inheritance, he's speaking here specifically about the kind of body that Jesus put on when he, when he rose from the dead. And he said there were three qualities of that body that at least he highlights here. It was incorruptible, it was undefiled, and it does not fade away. So it means that there's an aspect of your salvation, and this is one of the scriptures that make it very clear. There's an aspect of your salvation that has to do with the salvation of your body, that this body as it is cannot step into the fullness of all that God has for you. And so there's that futuristic aspect to your salvation, which is the salvation of your body, that your body would have to take on a form that is incorruptible, that is undefiled, and that does not fade away. You know, coming back to this topic of, of suffering, one thought I want us to consider is that, you see, the, the frailty of our bodies or the corruption of our bodies, if you like, which is that natural process by which the body decays, right? Or by which the body is injured or by which the body can be harmed. That vulnerability that's in our bodies is what makes suffering possible. Because imagine even if there was an earthquake, but the earthquake didn't have the power to, to injure anyone or to kill anyone, for example. Then you have to, be, you have to interpret the earthquake differently, no? But you see, there's a vulnerability in our physical bodies. It is prone to death. 
Yes, in the case of the early Christians, they can be lashed and the lashings will, will cause health conditions, will cause severe injuries, will make them weak just because of their faith in Jesus. And Peter is saying to them that it actually makes very little difference because this body is not the final hope. That if you are saved into Christ, you must hold steadfastly to the reality of who Christ is in the heavens, the kind of body that he has put on in the heavens. And that that futuristic element is part of the hope that you are to hold on to. So there is a body for you that does not grow old. There is a body for you that cannot be hurt by sickness or by injury. There is a body for you that is resistant to decay. And you see, it is your receiving that body that will eliminate the question of suffering. You see, another stream of suffering that we can come into, right, is suffering that is a result of the defilement of, of the body. The Bible says, do you not know that your temple is the, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? So there are certain engagements that you can do with your body that will expose you to certain kinds of suffering. But the promise of the gospel is that all of those tendencies and possibilities will be deleted in the hope of the gospel. And Jesus in his resurrection is our example that that is possible. Okay. Now, this is the futuristic aspect. And it covers half of what it means that we have a living hope. But you see, Christianity is not just an opium that douses the hurt and the sickness and the pain of today and offers nothing for tomorrow. There is a present tense aspect of our hope and our faith. But you have some comments here, Favor. Do you want to, you want to share them? Okay, yes, I already typed it, um, you know, like in the chat, but I'll just say it here. Like I said, um, I think my hope, my living hope is Jesus. Um, I think of the scripture that says, looking up to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and another um, verse in Hebrews that says, I think it's in Hebrews that says, but you see Jesus, um, mm -hmm. basically when he said that, that the earth hasn't been is yet to be subdued, um, then yeah. it goes on to say again, but you see Jesus. So when I see living hope, I think of Jesus Christ, actually. Um, he is the one I look on to, to, you know, be assured of my glorification and my, my perfection. Yes, I have been saved in my spirit. My spirit has been regenerated, but my soul and my body, I believe, are still on the journey onto perfection and glorification. Mm -hmm. But in this journey, I still have to be looking up to Jesus, who is the living hope, because he is the perfect um, example, you know, as scripture has said, he's the perfect model. And it says in several scriptures, looking unto Jesus, but to see Jesus. So I think Jesus is the living hope for me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's great. Thank you. Because he says that this hope is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So in Jesus, right, we see our possibility. And the, and the particular thing about Jesus that he's highlighting here is the kind of body that Jesus has, that kind of body that could walk through walls, right? That kind of body that was described as flesh and bone. There was no blood element in it. Its life is not from, from the blood anymore. Its life is from a divine source. That's your possibility, my friends. And that's my 
That's a core part of our hope as Christians. But you see, it is a futuristic hope. There's none of us that has that body right now. And that is why a key part of what it means to be a Christian is the present tense reality of that hope. And that's what verse 5 says, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be, to be revealed. So there is a keeping aspect. There is a power aspect that is living, that is real. And that power aspect is stirred up by the principle of faith. That's what makes our hope lively, right? That's, what, that's, that's another thing that makes it living, that there is a power that you can draw upon right now. There is a power that you can draw upon today by faith. That's why the scripture says that now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. And by today, I mean now, this moment. And I mean today, like today. But I also mean this dispensation. That God did not just leave us with the hope and ask us to endure everything until we lay hold of that hope. That he gave us a power to keep us. To keep us from the wiles of the enemy. Right? To keep us from everything that seeks to contend with the glory of his life in us. The gift of eternal life that you and I received has, has a present reality. And that present reality is that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And because he dwells in us, he, his dwelling in us is our access points to the Father. Access points to the riches of the grace of God. Access points to the riches of the glory of God. We can worship. We can hear the mind of God for our lives, for our families, for the investments that we want to make. We have access to a resource base that is not earthly today. It is a lively hope. It, it burns in our hearts in the morning. It burns in our hearts in the evening. You may not see anything different on our faces, but something real is alive in us. You were born again to a lively hope. Uh, there is no deadness and there is no dullness in Christianity, right? It's at, at the heart of Christianity is a call. You and I are called to a living and active, lively relationship with the Father. And everything we do is to be done on the basis of that relationship. And you see, everything you do on the basis of that relationship, the Bible calls it your true act of service your true act of worship. That everything you do by, by virtue of the stirrings of God in your life is your act of worship. That's why one of the metaphors that describes we who are part of this relationship is a living sacrifice. Because we are leaning on the work of another. And so, like I said, though, he said that we are kept by the power of God through faith, through faith. So if it is true that I have this power, how do I activate it? The Bible says it is through faith, through faith. So anything that punctures your faith, anything that affects your faith, anything that affects your ability to believe, to trust, uh, that same thing is going to limit your ability to lay hold of and profit from the power that is available to you. Right? Yes, it's going to affect. That's why all of Satan's attacks. Satan will leave you alone if he finds that he cannot change your faith. 
you know, you, you, you may have lost money, you may have lost somebody, you may have lost X, Y, Z, and you think that that's what he was interested in. What he was interested in was your faith. So that if your faith does not move, uh, then it is true that you truly won. That's why Jesus said to Peter in Luke, I believe, was it Luke 22, right? That Simon, Simon, Satan has sought you to sift you, but I've prayed for you. I didn't pray that you won't have difficult times, but I pray that your faith will not fail. Because if it doesn't fail, then the same Satan is in trouble. Right? When you are strengthened, strengthen your brethren. So any thoughts on this or we can keep reading? Yes, I have a, I have a thought on it, actually. I remember, yeah. I remember during a meeting we have in our church, somehow we were discussing mm -hmm. on the scripture and it came up. Um, a, a guy was talking about how he believes that some things are not possible like with the body, such as teleportation, like walking, not, well, not walking on water now specifically, but things that like are not recorded in the Bible, like um, walking through walls, all those things, like supernatural, um, you know, occurrences that happen with the human body. But then you know that um, it has been recorded with like previous father, um, fathers of faith and mm -hmm. other women in him. So things like that. Now I said, it's been recorded by people that, Although, yeah, it's not written in scripture, you know, in the whole 66 books of the Bible, but it's there. People have, have actually had um, these experiences. But he was so adamant on it's not possible that there are possible, there are things that are not possible for the human body that are so far as we have this human body in his words, that it's definitely not possible. And I wish I had this scripture in mind that time. But what I came up with was... Um, Romans 8, 11, talking about um, if the spirit would raise Jesus Christ from the dead um, lives in you, that same spirit will cooking your mortal bodies. I mm -hmm. told him, like, it said mortal bodies. He still insisted because we read down <laughs> and what we were talking about about sin, you know, overcoming sin. I, in my mind, I was like, it's overcoming sin, yes, but it's, it's more than that. It's not just sin alone. But he was so adamant on it. And to be honest, we haven't had that conversation again because it was turned into a serious argument. But I really wish we can talk again about it now when it calm out and then mm -hmm. bring up yeah. the scripture. Yeah. I make it a point of duty not to argue with people who claim to know the Bible because um, I'm not sent to those kind of people, right? Like if you if you already know enough and you're saved, then that's fine. God is after those who who are hungry and who believe that they don't know enough. But thank you for that contribution. There's an overlap between the body that we have now, right, and the one that we will have. There are some possibilities that overlap. For example, when when Jesus resurrected in that glorious body, he ate fish. So. Even though that body is supernatural, is even though it's not it's not made of of um, clay and dust, you know, like this one is, it still maintains the ability to eat, and dare I say to be refreshed by eating food, right? And so that's the same way that this body can can taste. That's the word can taste of the power of the age to come, like the writer of Hebrews puts it. So it's a testing. It's just that. This body cannot sustain the intensity of those moments, if not 
If not, the story will end like Enoch's story. But it can definitely taste of them, right? Mortality can put on immortality for a brief moment so that the work of God can be advanced. So if God needs to make you teleport to deliver you from darkness, he will do it. Of course, perhaps what may have been worrying your friend um, is our unfortunate tendency in Nigeria, especially amongst very young people, to try to make doctrines and teachings and prophecies and patterns out of those things, you know, which of course there's no precedent for in scripture. Um, but, there's, but there's overlap and there is a power. The word power here is dunamis and dunamis means potential power, meaning that whatever, whatever amount of this power you've seen is not all that there is to that power that they, all of the potential of what God can do is resident in the believer, right? And the Holy Spirit dispenses that power um, appropriately. Okay, thank you for the comment again. Can you read for us then from verse 6 to verse 9? Okay, verse 6 to 9 says, In this you greatly rejoice, though for now, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen your seen you love. Sorry, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice. With great, with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Okay, thank you. So, do you see what's going on here? He said to them that there is a future hope, right? And that hope is living because we've seen Christ, the living example of that hope, right? And he said, but there is a present power, a present resident anointing that is in you that keeps you. And it is this power that you can stir up to push back against the enemy. So if it is true that the power of the highest is domiciled in you as a believer, where does suffering come from? Why are you still called to endure suffering? This is what we're trying to touch on, right, at the same time. So he's, he's getting to the meat or to the question on the heart of his readers that, hey, we are, we are the dispersion, right? The reason you are writing to us in the first place is that we have faced something that appeared to have defeated the power that we have in our Lord. And so that's what makes him write to them in verse 6. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. What is this? In this you greatly rejoice. What is this? This here is the hope of the gospel, right? He says, you rejoice in the hope of the gospel. And you see, that's, that's the first question or like the first um, Rhetoric question I want, to, I want to leave us in our hearts from this study, right? Which is, what is the source of your joy, right? Where are you finding your joy? Is it on earthly things? Is it on circumstances? Is it on current affairs? Because if it is, I don't need to expand to you how, how unstable such a foundation is. The writer says that this, in this you greatly rejoice. This is an echo of what Paul said in Romans chapter 5. Right? That the source of your rejoicing, the thing that makes you joyful, 
It's not the size of your bank account. It's not the city that you live in. It's not the texture of your, of your current circumstances, but it is the hope, that living hope. Of course, there is the futuristic aspect of it, but there is the present tense aspect of it. That beyond material benefits and material comforts, the living presence of the Holy Spirit that is meant to be enjoyed every day. It's meant to be a spring of life. You see, like the reason some of us repent so vigorously, even though some people don't like it, is that there is a joy that we don't want to trade anything for. Uh, there is a joy. There's a joy that, that outlasts circumstances, that, that survives and overcomes dryness in the environment. There is a joy that is, that is worth more than anything that you can buy with money. And anything that will cost me that joy, I don't want it. I don't want it. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. So that's the first thing he raises here. The second thing he raises here, which I want us to see, because we're now slowly going to address the issue of suffering, although um, in bits, in different chapters. But as we do that, it's necessary to see what he says here, that, that though now for a little while, if need be, if need be. So before talking about the need to endure suffering, Peter is making it clear that we don't look for suffering, right? We don't have a material complex. We are not intentionally provocative. When I say I'm going out to preach the gospel, I'm not going to, to, to poke my nose in people's business and provoke them enough and then claim that I'm suffering for the gospel. No, we are not intentionally provocative. We're not uh, busybodies involving ourselves in people's business. We are not going where we are not sent. Because it's, it's possible that you can wake up and decide to go to the Middle East and proclaim Jesus in, in forbidden places. <laughs> the question is, were you sent? So Peter is saying, if need be. Right? And that's the first thing about Christian suffering like we said last week, make sure you don't deserve it, right? Make sure that you're not being ridiculously punished for your lack of tact or your lack of discipline. And then he says to us in verse seven, um, or maybe before we jump to verse seven, I think it, it makes sense to, to highlight um, the kind of suffering that Peter, right, is, is, dealing with in this letter so that it's not the kind of suffering that you bring on yourself but it's a specific kind of suffering so we have to jump verse 7 for a moment and go to verse 8 so it says in verse 6 that if need be you have been grieved by various trials right and then it talks about jesus in verse 7 and it says whom having not seen you love whom having not seen you love Though now you do not see him yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So you see that it is your love for Jesus, your desire to follow him, your commitment to advance his cause, the cause of his kingdom upon the earth. That's what provokes this kind of suffering. That in Christianity, Jesus does not call us to suffering but he calls us to follow him. 
he calls us into a personal relationship with himself to follow him. And sometimes that's, that following can lead us down the road of suffering. But we're not looking for suffering. We're just following Jesus, right? So that if Jesus tells me to stand up in my class and address iniquity to his face, and I know fully well that if I, if I take such a stand, there's going to be a backlash. The question is, who am I following? If it is Jesus that is staring up in my heart, then I must do it. Because that's, otherwise, I don't have Christianity. Christianity is an invitation to, to, to fellowship with a person. So if my goal is to avoid suffering by all means, then you can already see that it's going to affect the texture, the quality of that fellowship. And so the question raised by verse 8, and for you and I to consider is, do you love Jesus? And when I say, do you love Jesus? You know, it's the question that Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And he asked him that question three times before he told him, right, that a time will come when, when people will lead him to places where he doesn't want to go. And he was talking about the kind of death that he would die. But he says, do you love me? Do you love me more than yourself? Do you love me more than your reputation? Do you love me more than your survival? That's what Christianity is. It's a call to follow Jesus wherever he leads. Yes, wherever he leads. So that's why he prefixes his, his call to endure suffering by if need be, if need be. Yes, in your Christian life, there's a lot to enjoy. And it's possible that some of us here are not called, not some of us, most of us here are not called to suffer in any significant way of the gospel. Part of how you know that is that at least you were not born in the time of these believers, because if you were born, then by default, you are born into suffering, right? But it's something that we must realize so that we don't get shaken by circumstances, so that we don't start wondering why Jesus loves me, but everything, but this thing happened. We are called to follow Jesus. And sometimes that following can lead us to places that we don't want to go. And that is the kind of suffering that he's addressing. He's not addressing suffering that happened because you stole something. Suffering that happened because you were not disciplined. And then he tells us the meaning of suffering in verse 7. He says that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory. So this answers the question of why does God allow suffering? Terence, remember, you asked me this question, right? And you asked from John chapter 9, right? Remember the man who was born blind? And Jesus said, nobody's seen that this man was born blind, but that the glory of God may be revealed. And it, it's normally hard to reconcile such a thing. What does the glory of God have to do with somebody who was born blind? Well, you can be sure that God is not responsible for his being born blind because that's not how God created humans when God created them. But the thing is that if it happened, it means that God permitted it to happen. He didn't alter it, but he permitted it to happen. And the question is, why would God permit something that's not palatable? Right? Why would God permit a wrong ruler, for example, to rule over his people, even though it's likely going to lead to persecution of his people? The, the answer of scripture is that the only reason why God allows suffering 
is because it can serve a divine and enduring purpose. And that purpose is the purifying of our faith. You see, like we saw with Peter when he denied Jesus, you see that each of us, our faith begins with some kind of natural zeal. You know, we think we love Jesus, at least as to the best of our knowledge, we love Jesus and, and we are correct about that. The problem is that we don't really know ourselves as well as we think we do. We don't know ourselves. Right? We don't know how much the fall has affected our hearts, how much the fall has affected our psyche, our way of thinking. You know, that's why in like the place where this self-discovery is put on display the most is in marriage, right? Because you see two people who are having a wonderful relationship, everything is going well. They get married the first one year, everything is going well. And then as that process of unveiling begins to happen, both, both parties now realize that they don't really know themselves. Because if you knew the sinfulness of sin and the effect that it has had on the soul of man, right? You won't trust yourself to love Jesus to the end. Rather, you will commit yourself to him who is able to keep you. And that's what Peter didn't have initially. So it is often through pain, right? And through what looks like contradictions that God refines our faith. He makes it pure. He makes it true. He makes it sure. That's why James tells us, if you remember, at the beginning of his letter, James chapter 1, verse 4, that let patience have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That God's desire is that you arrive at the place where you are perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That what you are, what I am today, is not the end of the possibilities that God has for us. And so many times, God is going to allow contradictions that are not meant to destroy our faith or to defeat our faith, but are meant to bring us to a place where we find a greater depth in God, a greater strength in God. I'm saying of that to say that there is a glory, there is a glory that can come out of every, every contradiction. You see, the extent to which a situation that happens to you, imagine a situation that is not so pleasant happens to you and you begin to overthink and think it down to even where it is not going, right? And you say, ah, if this thing goes, how it's going, this is where it's going to end. The capacity that that thing has to put you down is less than the capacity it has to raise you up, to increase your rank, to, to strengthen and purify your faith. If only you find God in the midst of it. You find out what he's doing and you align with it. That's why one of my favorite authors, Oswald Chambers, will say, right, that, you know, the things that you and I are going through are doing one of two things in us. The things you're going through, no matter how small, no matter how big, is either making you more like Christ. It's making you more humble, more, more realistic about how you evaluate yourself, more gentle, more lovely, that when we meet you at 80, it's just the beauty of Christ that is radiating through your soul because of the things that you have been through. It's either the things you have been through are making you that kind of person, or everything that happens is just piling up to make your heart even more hardened, to make you even more rigid, to make you even more unyielding and more unbending. And the difference is how you respond to it. Right? So we've seen here that um, we, we've looked at our living hope, which has a futuristic 
and a present tense aspect. We've looked, we, we've looked at the principle of faith, right? That faith is a principle by which we lay hold on the present power of Jesus. But, but love is the thing that holds all of this together. That eventually, it is your affection for Jesus. It is your love for him, right? That will make you follow him anywhere and everywhere. That will give you a heart that is willing to endure anything for his glory. And the heart that holds on to these three together, hope, faith, and love, is going to reach what Paul describes as the end of your faith. In verse 9, he says, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your soul. I've been, I've been speaking for a while. I would like to hear your thoughts on this, especially this last part, receiving the end of your faith. What is the end of your faith? What is the salvation of your souls? Because clearly this, is, this has not yet happened, right? Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What do you think? Okay, personally, I think like at the end of it all, I think what shows that our faith has actually stood test of time is the salvation of your souls. Because if your faith cannot take you to the end, at that point, there's still going to be no benefits. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Gola. Right. Part of what it means is that your faith, your faith can redeem your soul. And this is not just a futuristic experience, which it is. And that's the highest expression of that, that the time will come when the shame, when the pain, when the lost, when everything that was of the fall, right, will be withdrawn from your soul. You know, in this first Peter chapter, chapter four, first Peter chapter four, right? He says, let's read verse one and two. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Yes, that your faith can lead you to a place where certain things cease from your life. Yes, your faith can take you there. And eventually, your faith is going to produce the salvation of your souls. The Greek word salvation, sorry, the Greek word souls here um, is, the, is the Hebrew word nefesh, right? It's the word that is often translated in the Hebrew as nefesh. And nefesh doesn't necessarily refer to the second part of your being. It refers to the totality of your life. It refers to the thing that animates you, that holy breath of God, right? That, that he breathed in the book of Genesis that made man a living soul. You see, when you ask yourself, what is precious about man? What is precious about you and I? Is it our intelligence? If it is our intelligence, then what happens when we have chatbots that, that can answer all the questions that humans can answer? What still makes you precious? The Bible calls it your soul. There is a breath that God breathed in you. That is what makes your life precious, regardless of the suffering in your body, regardless of the shape of your body, even if, if that living breath is in you, is precious. And that's why Jesus asked, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? It is so costly. The soul of a man is so costly that it costs God to die to redeem the soul of a man. It is so expensive that nothing but the death of God could, could redeem our souls. Hmm. That's why 
if you see somebody going astray, it's, it's not a cheap thing to turn that soul around because the soul has a will. <laughs> and God will not bend the will against, against the will, right? It takes, it takes an activity of redemption, an activity of sacrifice. It takes holding on to the sacrifice of God himself on behalf of that soul for that soul to be saved. It's an expensive, it, the soul is a priceless thing. There is something about life that, that is worth living, so much worth living, that if, if you ask anybody, if only you can take the suffering out of the picture, there is nobody that wouldn't want to be alive. If only you can take the suffering out of the picture. There is nobody that wouldn't be alive. So what is it about life that is so precious? It is the soul. The soul carries the breath of God. That same breath that God, God did it once. He, he breathed it once into Adam. And to this day, that same breath is producing life. That's how eternal it is. That's how precious it is. And it says that your faith, your faith can, that the outcome, the end of your faith is that your soul will be redeemed from all the traces of the fall and that you can experience this in a measure today and that you can hope for it tomorrow. Okay. Can you read the final three verses for us then for our study tonight? Um, favor, verse 10 to verse 12. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you Searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that will follow. To them, it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things which angels desire to look into. Mm. Thank you. So let me ask us, what do you take away from these final three verses? What stands out to you? Or like why you think about it? I want to summarize tonight's study by saying that the thing that the writer is saying here is, or Peter is saying here, is that suffering, suffering, if you see it anywhere, is proof that there's glory in the picture. Right? We said that last week, that when you see a woman begin to endure bed pangs, as painful, as, as, as terrible as that scenario looks, the very existence of those tears and that pain is proof that there is joy, that there is a bundle of joy and there is life on the other side. So that if your Christianity has no contradictions whatsoever, nothing that you have had to endure, nothing, right? then we may have to doubt if there's glory ahead for you. The Bible says that the glory that God has for us is so glorious, right? Both in this life and in the life to come that angels desire to look into it. It's not talking about an intellectual knowledge. Angels desire that they can be in your shoes. What does it mean to be the object of God's love? Right to be the object of such an intense love, to be the heir to such an intense glory. What does it mean to be at the center, at the heart of God's will for the earth? That you and I, who are elect, are at the heart of God's will for the earth. That if God's will will prosper on the earth, it's because of you and I. If God's glory 
won't come into the earth. It is true, you and I. The Bible says that the angels desire to look into these things. But the spirit of prophecy that was in the prophets testified of the, of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. It is, it is the same way that, that day follows night. That everywhere that you see suffering, there is a glory that follows. In case God is inviting you to spiritual disciplines, I can tell you there is a glory that follows. In case that you, you, you find yourself in the will of God and then suddenly there is a storm that makes you question if this was the will of God. The writer is saying that what to do is not to quit. No, what to do is not to conclude that, okay, maybe this was the wrong road. What to do is to remember that, that there is glory in it. So I'm going to hold on to faith until I see the glory come true. Until I see the glory manifest itself. And that's my prayer for us tonight. That God will empower us with the faith that is pure, that is true, that is sure, that endures, that is effective, that empowers. Yes, that our faith will be pure, it will be selfless, it will satisfy the heart of the Father, and it will produce the fruits for which God saved us and called us out. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah. Before we pray and close for tonight, do you have any thoughts? Uh, just final thoughts or questions? See close. I just feel like at the end of the day, everything still like faith is always intertwined in almost all our teachings. Like everything we learn still boils down to faith, like the testing and all of that. And it's good that we are still reminded that there's still the glory because some days it doesn't seem like it's there or it's coming, mm -hmm. but we are like, there's this assurance that there is a glory that awaits. So we just have to still press on. Yeah. Faith is what releases the power of God, friends. We must be aware of everything that punctures our faith. And also, you and I must be aware of everything that empowers our faith, that releases our faith. We must not joke with those things. We must not become tired of those things, right? Every, everything that, that supplies our faith with strength. For me, nothing supplies my faith like when I get on my knees in the morning. Of course, I pray at different times, but the morning one is special. Of course, there are different things that I do, and there are different times for different things, and those ones are special, right? But in my work with God, nothing supplies my faith, like when, I'm, when I get on my knees. And God is teaching me lately how to, how to experience the same supply at different moments of the day, that you can feel completely defeated in your soul, until you touch heaven. And, and without fail, every time I've touched heaven, the joy that I felt in my spirit, which I lived with, has eventually played out down the road. And my prayer for us is that we will not continue to circle around the same issues in the spirit, right? That in everything that you're going through, just Ask God to help you arrive quickly at what the lesson of this thing is and just move on from it and not circle around it too much. Right? So that your life and my life and our lives will continue to go on a tangent of faith. 
a faith that is effectual, a faith that overcomes, a faith that blazes the trail, that when you stand this time in two years and you look back, you can count and say, this thing came against my faith and it's not standing today. This other thing came, came against my faith and I blazed the trail. So that when God plants you in a place where there's intense opposition or in a place where there's intense dryness and it doesn't look like any river can flow in this place, you can look back and you can say, <laughs> yes, the Lord delivered me from the paw of the lion. I stood in places where there were lions and bears and he delivered me. So this uncircumcised Philistine is going to end it in the same way. Christianity is a call to memorial, that every victory becomes a memorial. God wants to equip your arsenal with memories of victories in the spirit, memories of conquest in the spirit, yes. And so every contradiction is an opportunity to turn it over to God and to experience the power of his life to experience the power that transforms. Can we cry to the Lord and say, Lord, strengthen my faith. Strengthen my faith. 